Welcome to Food Friends. I'm Carrie. And I'm Sonia. We met in Los Angeles over 15 years ago as private chefs and haven't stopped talking about food since. We created Food Friends to share our stories and recipes with each other and you. We're so glad you're here. Have you ever wondered what it's like to write and produce a cookbook? Or have you ever held a dear friend's cookbook in your hands? I recently received a copy of Sonia's first cookbook in the mail, and I could almost smell the challah baking in her kitchen and hear her describing how to braid the strands of soft dough as I read the recipe. And there's also a picture of the tuna salad sandwich she made for me when I visited Portland in June, and it looked exactly like the one I enjoyed at her kitchen table with a side of her favorite chips. Today, we're diving into how and why she wrote Braids, her first cookbook, which is full of delicious recipes as well as stories about her family, her lineage, and food friendships like ours. If you've ever been curious about what it takes to write a cookbook, or maybe you've even considered writing your own, either to preserve your family's recipes or for a wider audience, keep listening to hear about her experience. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Carrie. Your cookbook is here. I know. I have one in my hands. (laughs) You're one of the very few people on the planet who has it right now. It's so much more gorgeous than I even imagined it to be. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to start by saying that the cover is so beautiful, but all your pictures are so beautiful. Thank you. It's interesting to be holding a book of your friends. We are lucky to live in a place and in a time when books are everywhere. In some ways, I'll just speak for myself, like I take for granted, what does it take for a book to reach your hands? And I think it really lands differently when it's your friend's book. And when you Mm -hmm. have watched your friend create this book from the beginning to the end. And yes, a a book is a labor of love. In some ways, it's both individual and communal. It has such a communal spirit. Yeah. Even having worked on it for years, Mm -hmm. when I first got my sample copy, it was a few days maybe before Friday. And I usually when I make challah, I make it on Friday. And I remember taking out my own cookbook. Normally I take this, I have these little journals I write recipes in. I have a challah recipe in there and I have it almost memorized, but I love to have it out when I'm making my dough just to, you know, double check the weights. And I got the sample of my book. And for the first time I opened my book to make my challah and it was a completely different experience. And I was so surprised by it at how good it felt to cook from my book and from a book because I do think there's something different about following a recipe on your iPad or your phone, which I do all the time. All the time. Yeah, all the time. Versus when I follow a recipe from a book, there's just a different experience. And yeah, one of the things that's so exciting to me too about the way that this was printed is that the book lies flat on the counter, you know, so the pages stay open. That was really important to me. And so it was really special. And it was sort of that moment of, oh yeah, this hard work, it reverberates in different ways. And one way is that I get to use my own book to follow my recipes that I make for my friends, that I make for my family. Yeah. And I think it's worth taking a second and recognizing that saying you want to be an author and being an author, there's so much in between those two Mm -hmm. places. And in the last few years, obviously blogs have become like a place where people really express themselves. And there's so many recipes and things out there that you can find, but reproducing recipes into a cookbook is a whole nother skill that is different than just jotting down a recipe in a notebook or sharing it with a friend. And in some ways it's very official. There's this physical object 
object. Yeah. You've stuck your stake in the sand and said, this is my hollow recipe. Yes. And you can't go back as much as sometimes you want to rewrite things and maybe there's a typo here or there or, or things you would have done differently. This is yeah. the version of this book that came out. This is <laughs> yeah. what exists. It was printed. And that said, was printed. Yeah. I'd love to share a little bit about like why I even wanted to write a cookbook. Because well, that was my next question. Yeah. Because I know this is really important to you. And I think maybe it's helpful for some of our listeners to hear. Maybe some people want to write their cookbooks or just love cookbooks. Well, I want to write a cookbook too. So I want to hear your yeah. story again. I obviously know a lot of pieces, but it's always nice to hear every individual's experience. Like I said, you know, holding a book in your hand is a representation of a lot of choices. That really landed with me in holding your book because I own a lot of cookbooks, as do you. But it means something different when you know the person who wrote it. It really does. It know? really does. I've had mm -hmm. the fortune of holding other friends' cookbooks like <sighs> Shannon Sarna's and my yes. friend Joanne Chinchuli, who was a mentor who I write about in several places in the book. And that's why I can't wait to one day hold your cookbook. <sighs> and of course, like a very deeply close friend, it takes it even to another level, especially yes. the recipes that tie us to each other. And the very first recipe in my cookbook is Carrie's Granola. I share a story of when I first had it. The people in our life make up the food we eat. It doesn't come yeah. from nowhere typically. You know, yeah. there's often some kind of connecting point and you've been such a connecting point. So I'm excited for you to write a cookbook. The thing for me was I love cookbooks. I, I have yes. a pretty crazy collection. If you've ever been to my house. Your collection runs deep. You have a lot of the standard cookbooks that a lot of people have, the Barefoot Contessas and Odolangi, but you have some really unusual cookbooks too. I like to hunt for very obscure cookbooks. I've been mm -hmm. doing it for, a, and this didn't start recently. I've been doing no. this for 20 <laughs> years. I actually started collecting cookbooks in high school. And I remember- This is who I had, you are. Yes. This is who I am. <laughs> yes, I am totally. obsessed with cookbooks books. I have dreamed of writing a cookbook. I read them like novels at night before mm. bed. I like to sit down with a stack of cookbooks. As you know, I'll do it from the library. I'll do it from my own collection. Yes. I'll from your kitchen table. From yes. my kitchen. And in fact, my collection started when a childhood friend, her mother, decided to give me a bunch of cookbooks. I guess she sort of had some sense that I was interested in cooking. I must have been sharing it. But she was getting rid of stuff. And she's like, do you want these set of cookbooks? No one wants them. And it was Julia Child's you know, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Whoa. The New York Times cookbook, wow. like an essential Italian cookbook. And I have all those copies to this day. So that's really started a lot of my collecting. I have things from all over the Middle East, from all over North Africa, from New Zealand, from South America. So all over the world. That's kind of where this passion started. But then I opened the restaurant many years later. And I always dreamed yes. of having a cookbook for the restaurant. Yes. And I've worked on cookbooks. Joanne Chanchuli, who I mentioned earlier, is a formidable cookbook author. I think she's written a dozen cookbooks. And I met her early in my career and worked for her and was a recipe tester for her for multiple cookbooks. And she taught me so much. So I've been building this and building this and building this. And then I had a restaurant and the restaurant closed during COVID, as many of our listeners know. Yeah. And in that time of closure, it was really hard for me. It was a very difficult period. It was difficult for so many of us in the pandemic. But there was a tremendous amount of loss because it wasn't just the loss of my restaurant, a number of very close 
closest people in my life had passed away that year, including both of my grandparents. Yeah. So I was dealing with all this grief and all this sort of feelings that this dream I had didn't come true, except for it did. It was just short-lived. It didn't come true in the way that you had hoped it would have longevity in the world. Exactly. Mm. And so, and part of that dream for that deli was, oh, I want to connect to people through these dishes. I want to share these dishes that are part of my lineage, part of my community, part of my life experience. And maybe other people can connect to their own lineage who might share mine, or maybe they're just going to connect to a feeling, or maybe they'll just feel cared for, for a day or for a moment. That was the goal for the deli, really. It was so much the anchor of what I wanted to do because owning a restaurant is super hard. If you go into it thinking it's just about money, I don't know, that seems like a very tough path. Yeah. Most of the people I know who own restaurants, small restaurants, they have a deeper sort of drive to yeah. feed people. Yes. So when the restaurant closed and uh, there was all this loss, it was actually my therapist who was like, why don't you just put out a cookbook of your recipes from the restaurant? Like, why don't you mm -hmm. share that? And with her encouragement, I started writing this book in the very end of 2020. And the first iteration was, oh, I'll just do a little cookbook of beetroot recipes. Beetroot was the name of my deli. And then like all projects, it started to take a life of its, its own. own shape. Yeah, it took its own shape. I think I want to back up for one second and share something that I don't know that I've shared with you, but when beetroot closed, is still pretty high COVID. There was not travel and you and I live just far enough away from each other. Los Angeles to Portland kind of does require a, a flight. It's a yeah. 16 hour drive. Yeah. But one of my deepest regrets that I can't change is that when you went to close up the restaurant that I couldn't do it with you because I just thought of you being in that space and having to pack up all that food and pack up all these memories and dreams alone. It felt so sad to me and I wanted to be able to be there. And, you know, I had a small kid and I don't know if it had been 10 hours, I might've been able to like get in my car and drive. And I just remember kind of sitting and feeling like very helpless when something is happening with someone that I care about. I want to feed them and I want to hug them. And that was hard for me. You know, <laughs> I'm so moved by the depth of your love and support in our friendship always. And for you even saying that, and just so you know, and I think I've said it before, I never once expected in the height of no, the pandemic. It no, was an expectation. <laughs> and yeah. I know for you, it's just that strong desire, like, could it have been different? Because the truth is, and this is something people don't realize, it took me a year and a half to close the restaurant. There are situations where you just hand over keys and walk out the door. That was not my experience. It was endless. It was even harder than opening the restaurant by a magnitude yeah. of 10, selling every single piece of equipment, going through food, figuring out who to donate things to, who to give things to, who to sell things to. So even if you had come, it would have been like, when would you have come? And actually, I remember during that time, because I closed at the end of September of 2020, it was still, there was no vaccines. It was yeah. not easy to travel. It was not even to take easy to take a road trip. There was still a lot of fear about going into public restrooms. And it's so easy to forget how extreme it was then. That's part of why the restaurant didn't survive. But that fall, you turned 40. <laughs> I did. And yeah. your husband, James, called me. Oh, that's right. And he had to go actually travel, ironically, yeah. for work. He, he went to Bulgaria in October of 2020. And he called me in distress. <laughs> and he was like... <laughs> 
part. I, he's like, Sonia, I don't know what to do, but I know that there are three people on the planet Carrie would want to spend her 40th birthday with, and you're one of them. Could we surprise her? Can I fly you down? Can I figure it out? I'll COVID test you. I'll da da da. He was like, come, you know, he's a producer. He's so such he was a like, producer. He was totally. producing the whole that thing. Is- and I was like, James, I'm there. I'll do it. But at some point I said to him, James, I don't think we should surprise Carrie. I think we need to tell her about our plans. You know and he, me so well. And and he told you and you called me immediately and you're like, absolutely not. You were not getting, <laughs> you were not risking your, like, this doesn't make any sense. It was a different time. It, it was, was really different. Yeah. And it was an actual wall between the two of us. We couldn't be there for each other. To take it in a brighter place, you know, as you said, having your cookbook lay flat was important to you. And I have your gorgeous cookbook laying flat on my desk right now. I got to see the building before you opened on a trip, but I never got to experience beetroot in person for all the reasons that we just discussed. And I flipped through these pages and I get to experience it. I get to see these beautiful dishes that you made and I get to see what your plates look like there and to imagine what it was like for people to know a part of you the way that I know you and to experience your food the way that I know the magic that happens when people eat your food and having this physical representation of that is really important for me as your friend. Thank you for saying that. It's a kind of closure and it's also a kind of continuation. Uh-huh. It's like both at the same time. Like I finally get to be like, okay, that was that chapter. But then yeah. I also get to say, okay, here's how to recreate elements of that chapter. And the thing about the book is it's not just about the deli. It's a big part of the story because the book was born out of that experience. Mm-hmm. And I share so many recipes from the deli and I wanted to because we had a lot of people who wanted those recipes. But also it's, you know, and this is the reason it's called braids. It's strands from all parts of my life. The strand of my life that's my friendship with you is in the book. The biggest strand of my life that's in the book is my grandmother's recipes. Yeah. I mean, and she was the foundation for the deli, her food. It's dedicated to my grandmother, Miriam. Yeah. And I don't think there's been a bigger impact on me as a cook than her. Yeah. That was the part that made me cry. I'll just be honest. I sat there. When I opened it, I was sitting at the kitchen table with James and I was just like, oh my God, look at this picture. Oh my God, look at this picture. Oh, And then at one point I just got quiet. And then the tears started to roll down my face. And, you know, the dedication to the women of your family, to your two grandmothers, to your mother, for someone who has spent a lot of time in the kitchen with you, I feel the power of all those women in your cooking. And this idea of being able to hold some of these virtues in your hands by way of a cookbook, this is a legacy that these women have left in a way that I get to know you differently and experience your food, despite the fact that we don't live in the same city anymore. And my grandmothers, both of them, I don't have written recipes for everything. I had some foresight towards the end of my maternal grandmother's life to start recording her recipes when I would visit her. I'd just be like, okay, tell me how you make your pastry dough. Tell me how you make your pirushki. Tell me how you make this one soup. I would get her to tell me and I would write it down as she would dic- She would walk me through and she would love to talk about it in meticulous detail, you know, how to pick out a piece of produce or the brand of flour. Don't use that kind of flour. Use this brand of flour. But she also 
didn't write everything down. She did clip a lot of recipes and I have all of those. And she has a couple that she wrote down. But this was sort of me being able to retrace my palate too. So because I had watched her make so much food, I had a memory of a lot of recipes without having anything written down. And so to be able to actually codify them, to have them recorded, yes, they're maybe a little bit altered, but there are so many that are explicitly hers or my mother's or also influenced by my paternal grandmother, who I also was close to, just I didn't live in the same city as her, like Mm. I did with my maternal grandmother. I think there's a great Leonard Cohen quote that says, it's half my fault and half the atmosphere. It's partly who you are intrinsically and partly how you're shaped by your experiences, by your family, by where you live. And so one of the blessings of of the way I was shaped is that everyone in my family cooked. Mm -hmm. And they didn't just cook, they were like pretty good Prolifics, for sure. Yeah. My paternal grandmother, Baba Fania, she had a little business out of her kitchen where she would make dumplings and pastries, like variki and and very, very elaborate, actually, cookies and pastries, Soviet style and Ukrainian. And she would just sell them out of her kitchen. When we would come to visit her, would you know, cook four course meals, stuff you endlessly, you know, complain that you weren't eating enough. Touching your cheeks, like you're getting too skinny, all those (laughs) things, right? I want to go back to something that you said, because, you know, you said writing down those recipes as a way of having this record of them. And you got to retrace the development of your palate, not only how you eat in the world, but how you also then nurture other people through your cooking. And I just wonder if part of the writing of this book was also a reminder of, in a lot of ways, you are made of all of those ancestors. And I think in this country, we're always thinking about what is bigger, how to expand, how to do more. And when you have to close a restaurant, not by choice, there's, yeah, a sense of loss, but also, I don't know, a a shaking of identity and a shaking of what is your purpose? And to go back through and sort of touch those places where it was, oh, the reason why I love lemon and a lot of Dijon in this dressing is because my grandmother fed me this. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. I always think like, what is a recipe? You know, there actually, (laughs) I don't know if people know this, but you can't copyright a recipe technically. I mean, there's some formalities. You, you need to technically like change wording or change the ingredients a little, but no one can own recipes in the way you can own a song or mm-hmm. that you can own a piece of art. I actually like that. I actually I, like yes. that recipes belong to nobody in a way. And they, maybe, in a way they belong to everyone. And they belong to everyone. Yeah. And then, so a recipe to me is the sharing of your personal take on a dish that exists in the world. So mm-hmm. I think very, very few recipes are truly, totally new reimagined imagined thing. And some people are geniuses in that way, thinking of molecular gastronomy and just super innovative chefs. But for the most part, recipes, I think, are just iterations on something else. Yeah. My take on a turkey chili is different than your take on a turkey chili. Or your way of making grilled cheese is different than my way of grilled cheese. And we can learn from each other. Yeah. I didn't reinvent the components of how to make challah. I didn't reinvent the components of how to make a babka or matzo ball soup. But what I am offering is not just a list of ingredients. It's your voice and how you're communicating how to make something. Maybe you add in just a couple words that make someone think differently about how they're cooking a dish. I get that from cookbooks. So yeah. I know that that's part of my process is like all the things that have 
been taught to me through cooking shows, cookbooks, grandparents, through Carrie. You know, <laughs> I especially learn from home cooks when I'm in someone else's kitchen yeah. watching them cook. That's where I do my best learning. And that's where I eat the best food. I agree wholeheartedly. I guess maybe let's get into some of the recipes. Do you want to start with Hala? That seems like the right place to start. Yeah, it's it's the cover photo for a reason, you know, yeah. and the title is braids, which has different implications, but the braiding of challah, which is a traditional way of forming challah, although you don't have to technically braid it. Also, I used to always wear my hair in two braids my whole life. If you talk to any of my friends from my childhood, when I tell them the cookbook is named Braids, they all start laughing because like... <laughs> I think a couple of the kids actually nicknamed me braids. It was such a signature look. And then braids as a verb, an experience of like braiding our lives, the act of weaving things together. So hala to me is the culinary embodiment of all those concepts. There's nothing I enjoy more than baking hala. Of everything I make in the kitchen, it is my favorite thing to make. I love the satisfaction of seeing dough rise. I love the feeling of punching down a pillowy ball of dough. I love the feeling of rolling out straight and braiding it. I love egg wash. I love sprinkling sesame seeds <laughs> on top. I love pulling it out of an oven. It's all like golden brown or shiny and new and transformed from nothing into something. I love every part of Hala. Can I add one thing? The crunchy on the outside and then so pillowy on the inside. Yeah, it's a soft, crisp crust. It's not a hard crust. It easily gives way when you push on yes. it. Yes. But it's just enough texture that it contrasts like what is extremely soft and tender inside. Pillowy. Yes. Pillowy. Yes. Smushable. And um, <laughs> there are a wide variety of challahs actually around the diaspora and not everyone makes them the same way. There's the sort of dominant, especially in, in America, kind of challah that's made with egg, which is considered an enriched dough as opposed to like a water-based dough. The difference between enriched dough and not is that you would add fat. So an enriched dough typically has oil or butter and eggs, like a brioche and or right. a challah in this case. My challah, I searched for a recipe mm -hmm. and it started in my 20s, my exploration of challah. And my exploration was rooted in this one bakery in Seattle. So there was a bakery in Seattle called Prenner Brothers Bakery. This bakery we went to all the time. My dad would pick me up from school on Friday. We'd go to the bakery. I would desperately hope that they would give me a free sprinkle cookie, a rainbow sprinkle cookie. I love those cookies. I actually sold them at my deli. Who doesn't love a rainbow sprinkle cookie? Come on. They're the best. We'll link a recipe to a rainbow sprinkle cookie because they're just so good. And their challah to me was my platonic ideal only because that's what I had growing up. So right, for me, right. that was it's a shine. It's a taste memory. Yeah. It's a taste memory. So for someone else, they might want a different challah. Their challah wasn't too airy. It wasn't dry. It wasn't too sweet. If you like dug into the loaf and yeah. you took it out, it was little like both feathery, but then also you could crumple it in your hand and mush it into a ball, into a chewy dough ball. And I love that. And I would dunk my challah. <laughs> <laughs> I would dunk my challah in milk every single Saturday morning. It was one of the best food memories of my childhood. So I was always on the hunt for that challah. Right. So I was like working from a memory of something that no longer exists. So that also means my memory could be flawed. I tested many, many, many recipes. And then I started tweaking and working on my own. And then when I opened the deli, I actually also partnered with a professional recipe developer, someone who helps take your recipe and scale it. They oh, help wow. you keep the essence of your recipe, but do it in larger quantities. Because baking, you can't always just double or triple things. You would make one challah at your house, right? Or maybe you, you make, make batches two. of two as make opposed to two, two or right. three, as opposed to batches of nine or 12. Yeah. 
you know, right, so right. at a time. So it was like a big difference of scale. So with her, I actually finally honed in exactly my version and that's what's in the oh, book. And wow. so in the book, I actually offer a recipe for two loaves versus three loaves. And some families, they want three loaves or some people like to do a big batch at a time and then freeze loaves, which I highly yeah. recommend. Yes, they, they keep very well. So there are things that are unique to my recipe. And I think everyone's challah recipe is a little bit different. Mine has the component of many other halas. It has eggs, it has honey, it has oil. I like to use bread flour. I think bread flour really makes a difference in this hala. I don't think mm. all-purpose works quite as well, although you can use it. It has yeast. It has a lot of the elements you'd see in any hala, but it's about the ratios. It's about the amounts. I Again, there may be one that's very, very similar to this out there. I don't know, but this is my offering. And for me, it was the hala of my dreams. I've never, ever published this recipe anywhere, partly because it took so long for me to create over 10 years. Over yeah. 10 years. And I share so many recipes happily for free. But as you know, like it takes work to write and photograph and share recipes. Yes. So this one felt important to sort of keep sacred in the book. But over the years, because people have come and eaten my challah, they've been like, can I please have your recipe? And for my closest friends, I sh- I've shared my recipe, you know, because mm-hmm. they're my friends. And those people all make my challah, which has been really fun. Or a friend had a Rosh Hashanah party that I actually couldn't make, but later found out that multiple people brought my challah recipe, brought their challahs to that party, and it warmed my heart so much. I mean, I think you're, you're also making the point about the importance of cooking, the importance of recipes, and the importance of connecting over food, because that's a legacy that you are leaving for these friends that you're giving and connecting to and that they're connecting to and then they're taking that out into the world. Every time they send me a picture of their halas, which they do, you know, yes, it fills me with warmth and joy. It's so fun to see people enjoying the food. That's the point of putting it out there, right? The yes. point is for people to enjoy it and to have their own memories with it. And that happens with a lot of recipes that I've shared before, like online. It's so meaningful to hear from people when they try it and they enjoy it and they share even a specific experience. We had such a happy moment eating this cake because it was something that we used to have in our family. And again, that's the reason for doing this, right? So, Well, I think it's also, it goes back to the spirit that you mentioned, which I actually didn't know this about that you cannot copyright a recipe, that recipes really belong to everyone. And it's true that, you know, this book is not free, that if I want to go buy it, I have to pay for it at a store. But that's an acknowledgement of of the time that it took to put it together and the materials that it took to put together. But the idea that you were sharing this hella recipe with just a few people and you've watched those little ripples spread out to other people. And as a non-Jewish person who's gone to Shabbat dinners, for me, challah is such a symbol of the beginning of this meal. Like you put this challah out on a table that people are gathered around and there's a prayer that's said, which of course I'm a witness to, but there is a a ceremony that happens and then people start eating challah together. To me, it's just like a challah is a shared experience that is so nurturing because who doesn't want this fluffy, delicious bread at the end of a week when you're connecting with people around a table? Yeah, it's your first Mm. bite of food that turns 
transitions you from the chaos of the week into a moment of rest and connection. That's a really big part of, of Shabbat. But I do want to offer, even if you're not Jewish or don't have a ritual around challah, I love challah as a gateway bread for baking at home. I think bread can be really intimidating, especially sourdough breads or just any kind of bread can feel like, oh, how am I going to make that? That seems really hard. But I think if you've never made bread before, challah is actually very forgiving. It's really hard to mess up. Having said that, you know, a lot of people get stuck on sometimes their braids don't look nice. Yeah, that's what I would be afraid of. (laughs) Totally. I appreciate that you're offering this framing. I confess I've never made a challah. I love that you're talking about it as a gateway bread. It's such a beautiful bread too. If your challah isn't beautiful, that's kind of sad, right? My argument is your challah is always beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) So my big advice around challah is just make it (laughs) and play around with braiding. And if it's hard at first, you know, you don't even have to braid. You can make one big spiral, a big strand of dough and spiral it into a circle. And that's a challah. You could take two strands of dough and twist them. And that's a challah. You don't have to start with the most complicated braid. If you know how to braid hair and you can do it with three strands of hair, start with a three strand challah. Then again, sometimes the braids like come apart when they bake, they rip. People get very bothered by that. They want their braids to look perfectly taut and formed and beautiful. And those issues can arise when you underproof or overproof or where you position the challah in your oven can impact how the braids stay together. There's a lot of factors. But I would also say is even if your braids split, even if they become misshapen, even if it's ugly, not one person has ever not enjoyed a freshly baked challah. Freshly baked challah. Whatever shape it emerges. Yeah. Who's going to pass up a warm, fresh challah? How can you be mad? How can you be mad in that moment? That's the thing. Like for me to have experienced Shabbat at many friends' houses, just that idea of gathering everyone around a table and sharing a loaf of bread. I mean, is there anything more elemental or connecting than that? In the opening of my section that has that contains the challah, when my deli closed, this amazing cartoonist, Lucy Bellwood, who I was friends with in Portland, she sent me a note. She was at that time in California, but she sent me this note because she had been a fan of the deli. She'd come in. She knew what it lost it was. And she's an incredible artist. So she collaged this piece and it said, in challenging times, my women friends were often on the mark using trust and generosity to game a burning system, confident that community was the way to get us through. It would be naive to think three square meals will bring out the best in all of us. But try it on. Bread for everyone is not so broken a response. Wow. That is such a sum up of so much of how I feel about food and our food friendship. And I would also like to offer an additional idea. This is a story that many people might not know at all, which is that when Mac was about to turn one, we were going to have a birthday party for him and it was going to be really small. My parents came to visit and my mother-in-law came to visit. And as a cook who doesn't really like to bake, I was feeling kind of stressed about this idea of a one-year-old and give them a cake to smash and put it all over their face and you take pictures and all that. And it was you who offered to make the birthday cake for Mac's first birthday. And it was such a meaningful gift because while I like to give a lot of things, I find it sometimes hard to receive. And for 
one of my oldest and dearest friends to offer something so personal and to offer it in a time when I kind of didn't have a, an answer. I just didn't have the bandwidth to think about it even, to even ask you. And you just brought us the most delicious yellow cake with milk chocolate frosting that I still dream about to this day. That was a really special experience for me. And we have all those pictures and our family still talks about that cake. But my son is seven and he knows who his Auntie Sonia is because she comes to visit and we talk about you. And this book is sitting on our kitchen table and sharing that with him of look what your aunt did. She made this book. And I think just like your grandmothers shared with you, this love of food and these recipes, you're a part of my story and you're part of his story. When you and I are gone and we're not bossing him around the kitchen anymore, (laughs) he still has this book to think about who you were to him and who you were to me and who you were to our family. And, you know, even your grandmothers have a hand in the raising of my child. It's such a moving memory. I mean, I think also that call to bring you that cake is because that's exactly what you would have offered me. (laughs) I think I was channeling Um, you in that moment. What does, because, and I write this in the book that you know just what to give people and exactly when they need it. And that has been such a marker for me. You know, I've, I've asked myself so many times, what would Carrie do? What would Carrie bring? What do, (laughs) and you know that I do that. And that offering of that cake was like, oh yeah, like maybe Carrie wants a cake. I feel like that could help. She would offer that to me. Not like, because I'm doing it because you would give it to me. It wasn't. No, because you are, because you were in sync with me. I mean, I'm not going to remember exactly the moment that this happens, but you know, when a baby is in utero, they start to hear. And so they recognize the noises and the voices that they hear. And so for instance, I have a dog. His name is Marco. He's the love of my life. And he also <laughs> barks and he also barks a lot. And people would say, it'll be interesting how Mac responds to Marco when he's born. And what was funny was Marco would sit kind of above Mac on the couch and bark at people walking by our house, like to protect him. And Mac would sleep through the whole thing because he wasn't bothered by the barking because he had heard it the whole time he was in my belly. There were two people, you and my friend Sue, I spent a lot of time with when I was pregnant. I spent a lot of time with you. And I actually was cooking a lot with my friend Sue. And both of you were two of the first people to come to meet him. And he knew your voices. And, and, you know, we, we were very much in sync together. And so again, this is just, I think, a way that our lives are woven between each other. You've talked a lot about these very beautiful moments we've shared And that is like the hallmark of a great friendship and a great relationship and a family is like these moments are everything. The time Mm -hmm. someone cooks for you, the time you experience something together, the time your baby recognizes a voice, the time where something was hard and the person's there for you, even if they're not physically there for you. You were there for me during my experience at my restaurant, whether you were present or not. And this book simply would not exist in its current form without you and without getting into every detail of why. I had been planning to do this book print on demand, which is sort of the normal kind of most common way people self-publish right now. But the problem with that system is they use digital printing, which is not as nice for photographs. And I was really distraught when I got my first digital samples. I got my samples 
I was really, I was like, this isn't the book I worked on. And with your help in both material and immaterial ways, you helped me choose a new path. And I ended up printing it independently and not doing it through demand and doing it on offset printing. And it became the book I envisioned. You helped me realize what I dreamed for the book and you didn't let me settle on a lesser version. You were just like, no, how do I support you in making your dream happen? So this book, yes, the stories in it are implicitly influenced by our friendship as people will read their recipes, their moments where I speak to you. But then there's also this element of the logistical realities of putting a project into the world, of birthing something that we also don't do alone. Yeah, it's true. And I think that's what friends do is we hold the best vision of each other. And I'm so thrilled to have held the vision of this book with you because I know how special you are and I know how special your cooking is and I know how important it is that your voice is in the world. And I'm so thrilled to be sitting here holding this book that lays so perfectly flat on my table. <laughs> I mean, it's quite a sum up of everything. I've been blessed with my grandmothers, my mother, with you. There are so many other women who are the part of the blessings of this book. I just yes. want to call out um, Katie Gorley, who was first was my editor. She and I met when she was a baker in my restaurant. And we spent a lot of time in the summer of 2020 in a basement kitchen making food together. Oh my gosh. And if anyone knows what kitchen talk is like, it's some of the <laughs> deepest talk. <laughs> so is. much comes out in a kitchen. Yep. And I knew she had these incredible copy editing skills. I knew she shared an incredible love of cookbooks. So it was a natural fit when to ask her to help me edit the book. And she so enthusiastically came on board and was so instrumental to crafting the book, to building the book. But then also she happens to have incredible design skills. We talked about the vision of the design and then she just executed it flawlessly. So I have to thank her. And then I have a friend that I've been friends with since high school, Chris Travis. Chris and I... I were, you know, in that high school art room making art for years together. <laughs> She actually designed my logo for my restaurant. Mm. Chris is an incredible designer. And so when Katie and I had a couple obstacles without getting into the nitty gritty, Chris just came in and was like, I can help you. She saved the day. And she did it so generously, so mm. kindly, so swiftly. Just that feeling of all of these incredible women in my yeah. life. And yeah. I'm not even naming everyone in my life because there's a bunch of people you can read the acknowledgements. Right. These stories are very meaningful. All these bonds that we share with one another. When you put out a book like this, there's something that makes them official and permanent in the world. And I think this is the way that women show up for each other. Yeah. You know, you were talking about sometimes it's hard for you to receive. And I think when we're in service work, which is often cooking work, th mm -hmm. that can be true for a lot of us. So part of the experience of this cookbook was embracing the receiving mm -hmm. that I was being given. I don't really even have the words. Because you have given so much, then all that's coming back to you. I honestly didn't expect to have this conversation go so personal, but on a culinary note, because I haven't talked to many people who've seen my book, is there a recipe or two that you're excited to try? I have to say one of the recipes that I first saw this picture kind of stabbed me and I was like, oh, I wish that I had gone to the deli and, and it's the lox and latka breakfast. There's these three perfect latkas and two fried eggs and like a little pile of lox. And as a non 
non-Jewish person, I really like to have latkes for Hanukkah, but it's not like a thing that I ever make outside of Hanukkah. And so to be able to go and have latkes like not in December and also have them with eggs and like some luck. So that's one that I'm really drawn to. Thank you. Yeah. We started making latkes just for December when I had the deli and we were just selling out the whole month. We couldn't keep up. My business partner was like, why don't we serve latkes for breakfast? A lox and latkes plate. And I was like, oh yeah, the best ideas are sort of often the most obvious. So because of him, we did. And that also became a huge hit. I understand why. There's a lot of care that needs to be taken with a latke to make it really crunchy and delicious the way that you make them. Look, everything is a little bit about technique. The ingredients are going to look like a a lot of other latke recipes. But what I hope I can offer is a little guidance on how to make them this way, you know, which is crunchy on the outside, not too thick, not too thin, soft on the inside. People can go back to our latkes and ham episode (laughs) because we talk about this in detail. But yeah, I'm excited to make them too. And I think that in a way it gives me permission to make latkes and then eat them for breakfast. Just another thing to share about the book is my perspective on Jewish food is really rooted in my West Coast experiences, you know, Mm. growing up in the Pacific Northwest, living in California, and then also moving back to the Pacific Northwest. Those influence my dishes and the Northwest influence shows up throughout this cookbook. What makes it different is hyper-seasonality. You know, people here really eat seasonally a lot. That's also reflected in the recipes. I really enjoy cooking with the seasons. I really like embracing local ingredients. You know, wild mushrooms show up in my savory blintzes and Marion berries, which is so Northwest, show up in my rugula. And I also like to lighten things up. I think a lot of traditional, especially Ashkenazi Jewish food, which is, you know, my background, can be very heavy. And that's just not how I eat and not how a lot of West Coast food is and Northwest food is. So for instance, there's a cheesecake recipe, but instead of traditional cream cheese, it's made with labneh, which is like a strained yogurt. And that really lightens up the cheesecake and makes it sort of, in a way, easier to eat a little more of maybe. And not that every dish is a health conscious dish. I don't want to present it that way because it's not true. The babka has a lot of butter and deliciousness in it. As it should. As it should. Yeah. But then there's a whole section just on deli salads because at my deli, one of the things that I think made it Northwest and not just like an East Coast deli, the center of the deli was seasonal salads. We had a big deli case of rotating salads. I was very also inspired by Otolenghi and Sammy Tamimi's restaurant in London where they have all these beautiful seasonal salads. So that is a big part of the book and was a big part of the deli and something I'm hoping to share more of because there isn't a ton about this specific topic written in the world. Yeah. These were some of the other recipes that I had flagged Mm. too. Like they're gorgeous, like the herby potato salad. You and I talk about that, but I love the visual of it. I love, like you were saying, once your book was in your hands, the first time that you made hollow, I've known you for over 15 years and I'm so aware as are many of our listeners that your potato salad is very herby, but I love (laughs) having the picture of it to think about in my kitchen instead of just doing it on memory. I can now pull out this book. And I'm so grateful that you put it out into the world. Well, thank you for helping me. You know that I couldn't do it without you. I love you. And I'm so excited for other people to experience you and your food from this place. It's pretty incredible. So congratulations yeah. to you. Thank you. And we'll link how to buy the book, how to how to get your hands on it. And thank you, Carrie. Thanks for taking time today to talk about this as I embark on putting it in the world. This is a really meaningful conversation to me. So thank you. Thanks for being our food friend. 
If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, leave us a review, and share this episode with friends. We love hearing from you, so follow us on Instagram or drop us a line at foodfriendspodcast.com. Yes, we'd love to hear from you and your food friends. Happy cooking and eating. Oh, oh.